so over the course of the retreat so far, I've been trying to weave together practices and teachings that develop both of the two wings to awakening that I named last night, wisdom and compassion. And I'm weaving those together as support for the retreat theme, which I named as healing the heart, refining the mind, finding freedom. Last night I spoke about compassion as a support for the healing the heart aspect of the retreat. So tonight I'd like to come back again and orient us towards the wisdom wing and to continue looking at the second establishment of mindfulness, feeling tone, that we just touched into briefly this afternoon. Because as I mentioned then, feeling tone, Vedana, is a deceptively simple aspect of experience, but it's one that has profound effects on our journey towards freedom. So, in the Buddha's core teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which encapsulate our journey to freedom, as most of you know, that first Noble Truth just very simply acknowledges there is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. And he invites us to look more carefully about how we relate to that suffering. And even though the Buddha names this first noble truth as a noble truth, for many of us, as I mentioned last night, it's pretty counterintuitive to move closer to suffering, to get to know it, even to befriend it, instead of our more habitual response of trying to instantly get rid of it. So in hearing this description of the first noble truth, we need to keep in mind that the point of that befriending of suffering is to help us live with more ease, more happiness, more peace and freedom. And although the path of practice might start with suffering, it's very much aimed at releasing all afflictive states of heart and mind, which is also known as Nibbāna, awakening, enlightenment, realization, peace. So I'm stating all of that up front and pretty simply because due to our brain's inherent negativity bias, we tend to unconsciously skip over the references to ease and peace and freedom and fixate on, cling to, or perhaps reject the teachings that talk about suffering, stress, distress, and that inherent negativity bias of the mind is one reason why I've started this retreat by highlighting some of the more positive or pleasant aspects of the practice. So we began with dana, with generosity. And I've been inviting you to orient to ease and to relaxation as supports for samadhi, steadiness, stability of mind. Then yesterday we were exploring how does the body feel when it's temporarily, at least, free of clinging and might be experiencing release, ease. And then this afternoon we did some very preliminary explorations of pleasant feeling tone when I invited you in the relational practice to walk outside together and to name any experiences at any of the six sense doors that register as pleasant. 
And when we came back after that session, many of you reported very clearly that your experience that what we pay attention to has a powerful effect on the state of our hearts and minds. So if we focus on what's difficult, painful, challenging, which is our usual habit, it shapes our experience of the world in a particular way. In a way that's quite different than if we tune into what's pleasant, nourishing, soothing. Now, I'm not saying, oh, just ignore whatever you don't like and just deludedly focus on what's pleasant. These teachings are much more sophisticated than that. But what this is pointing to is the truth of conditionality. How our hearts and minds are conditioned, they're affected by where and how we place our attention. And we can use that conditionality to our advantage to help keep strengthening skillful mental qualities and help keep releasing the unskillful mental qualities. So the Vietnamese meditation master Thich Nhat Hanh famously stated, happiness is available. Please help yourself. It's very simple. But how often do we remember to do that? And so that's why I've started this retreat with these little invitations to directly experience happiness. And even though in theory it is always available, it's surprising how often we don't help ourselves to it. And as we know, it's not enough to just tell ourselves to be happy. We have to investigate what gets in the way of that happiness and what supports it which again is where the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths come in. So as I mentioned this afternoon, the Buddha was a master of deconstructing our experience into its component parts so that we can see very clearly the mechanics, the process of how we get caught in harmful reactivity and how to free ourselves from it. And so far I've been keeping our exploration of the Four Noble Truths very simple and condensed, condensed into just two basic movements of body, heart and mind. The movement of clinging, contracting, tightening, holding on or resisting. And the opposite of that, the movement of release, of letting go, of ease, of peace. So these two reactions of clinging and resisting, they almost always reinforce an unconscious identification with experience, the tendency to take it personally and then use it to construct a fixed, solid, static identity, a sense of me, of mine, of who I am, which only intensifies the suffering. So that's why I've been putting so much emphasis on the non-reactive aspect of mindfulness and so much emphasis on building steadiness of mind because that's what helps us to be with our experience just as it is. And this afternoon when we touched into pleasant and unpleasant feeling tones we started to experience how quickly and easily they can push us into reactivity when they're not seen for what they are. So, 
This evening I'd like to go a little bit further with that exploration of feeling tone, remembering it's just the basic recognition of any experience at any of the sense doors, as pleasant, as unpleasant, as neither, in other words, neutral. So this basic recognition of feeling tone, it's an automatic function of our nervous systems. It's happening on a basic level, and we don't actually have any control over it. It's just what our nervous systems are built to do. And I understand that, in fact, this function is happening in the more primitive part of the brain, our reptilian brain. It's that reptilian brain that's responsible for recognizing feeling tone, which makes sense because it's not very sophisticated. And it seems to have come from a time in our evolution when we needed to work out very quickly whether something was a threat, might eat us, or whether we could eat it, or whether perhaps we could mate with it. So that basic fight-flight-freeze response stayed with us. And in some ways we've just learned to overlay apparently more sophisticated rationales onto doing what we do and not really recognizing that underneath all of those rationales usually is feeling tone. So in my own practice when I first started to explore this, I found it actually a little shocking and certainly humbling to realize how much Vedana was driving my experience. And up until then I had this belief, which turned out to be a delusion, that I was a pretty sophisticated human being and that I was making informed and intelligent choices in relation to my complex and sophisticated life. And then when I started paying attention to Vedana, I realized that actually I'm not <coughs> different from an amoeba, just like a single-celled amoeba sort of blobs towards what it likes and blobs away from what it doesn't like and nothing much is going on, it just sort of blobs around generally. I'm pretty much doing the same. The main difference between the amoeba and me is the delusion that I'm a highly functioning human being. Now, you might think that's a slight exaggeration, but check it out. If you think back over some of the choices that you made, even just today, if you investigate them with mindfulness, chances are that pretty much everything you did on some level was motivated by moving towards pleasant, moving away from unpleasant, or if it was neutral, looking for more stimulation. Does that feel true? Anyone think that that's way off the mark? Yeah, you can recognize. Yes. So, you know, just to say there's nothing inherently wrong or bad about this Vedana. It's a normal function of our nervous system, and of course it has an effect. If we didn't have Vedana, we probably wouldn't survive for very long. And even if we wanted to, we can't stop it from happening, because it's yet another aspect of our experience that we're not in control of. But, and this is a big but, even though it's mostly unseen, it does powerfully affect our lives. And as we were exploring, when it's clung to, it's the basic block of all of our, the building block of all of our reactivity. 
And as I mentioned this afternoon, I'd go so far as to say that every one of our problems, every one of the world's problems, comes from not knowing how to relate skillfully to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So paying attention to Vedana has an ethical dimension to it. And it's probably another reason why the Buddha puts so much emphasis on this apparently simple aspect of being human. Because when there's no mindfulness of these feeling tones, they tend to strengthen what the Buddha recognizes the three core afflictive energies that keep us spinning out in greed, in hatred, in delusion. Now, this is happening moment to moment, if there's no mindfulness, but also over the course of our whole lives. So every time we react unconsciously to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral stimuli, we're strengthening certain neural pathways. So unconscious reaction to pleasant feeling tones strengthens wanting, which becomes habitual and turns into the habit mind of greed. Unpleasant feeling tones, when not related to skillfully, they strengthen not wanting. And when that reaction becomes habitual, it turns into the habit mind of hatred or aversion. Neutral feeling tones can strengthen not knowing or ignoring. And when that reaction becomes habitual, it turns into the habit mind of delusion or ignorance. So the more habitually and unconsciously we react to these feeling tones, the more we're strengthening greed, hatred and delusion. And there's a biological basis for this, as neuroscience now understands that neurons that fire together, wire together. So even right now, we are shaping, sculpting, crafting our hearts and minds and our lives by how we respond in the moment to pleasant, unpleasant and neutral stimuli. Not only that, but we tend to take this movement from pleasant, unpleasant, neutral into liking, not liking, disliking, preferring and constructing a whole sense of identity around that basic stimulation. So just as an example of this from my own life, of how unrecognized Vedana can create a sense of identity. It happened quite a few years ago now when I was living in Australia, in the Blue Mountains, and I needed to go for a long drive across the, strip, across the state to another town. And I didn't own a car, so a friend lent me one. It was the middle of summer, so I set off early in the morning when the day was just pleasantly warm, a little like here. And I was enjoying this novel experience of driving through the countryside in a new and comfortable car. I was in a good mood. And then at some point I got stuck behind a long line of trucks and the one in front of me had a giant bumper sticker that said something that to my perspective was pretty offensive and triggered a lot of unpleasant feeling tone. And then suddenly I was all grumpy and I noticed it was really hot in the car. So I poked on the air conditioning, turned it on, and after a few minutes, oh, such a nice day, enjoying the drive, 
landscape has a stark beauty to it. Felt grateful to my friend for lending me the car. Then I remembered how he'd said I shouldn't use the air conditioning unless I really needed to because it affected the fuel. So I turned it off, driving along. My friend's pretty tight with his possessions. I wonder why he's so, you know. I'm pretty grumpy right now. What is wrong with me? Turned on the air conditioning a few minutes later. Ah, such a nice day. <laughs> and this went on and on and on because it was a long drive and it took me a surprisingly long time to recognize that just a few degrees of change in temperature was conditioning pleasant and unpleasant Vedana and I wasn't seeing it and so I was getting caught in irritation, aversion, frustration and then when I'd cooled down, gratitude, appreciation and so on. And I believed that what I was thinking and feeling was real and true and me and who I was. Anybody else recognize that kind of experience? So we can see how feeling tone, when it's not related to skillfully, can easily be identified with. So let's look at some of the common ways we do get caught in these feeling tones and how we might develop a more skillful relationship to them. So first, the unpleasant Vedana. We try to recognize it as close to the source as possible before it compounds into not liking and reactivity. So right now, even, you might just take a moment to notice, is there a physical sensation anywhere in the body that's unpleasant? Maybe the body's feeling heavy and drowsy. Maybe you have the beginnings of a headache. Maybe there's some sensations in the belly from having eaten too much, or maybe not enough. Or maybe there's some irritation in the mind, not wanting to touch into unpleasant Vedana. You see if you can just recognize it without reactivity. Most people find it pretty easy to recognize unpleasant feeling tone because of that famous or infamous inbuilt negativity bias. Because painful experiences tend to stick in the mind because they're potentially threatening. So we try to just notice Vedana without moving into hatred or aversion. And when we talk about this key term hatred, it encompasses a whole spectrum of experience, from the most subtle trace of irritation or frustration, all the way through to the most intense rage and loathing. And usually when we touch into unpleasant feeling tone, we unconsciously go towards something pleasant as an antidote to it. And so, there's a famous uh, teaching in the suttas where the Buddha talks, uses the image of the two arrows or two darts. Many of you are probably familiar with that. And he talks about someone who has no meditation training. If they're shot by an arrow, they have the physical pain of that being wounded, but they add 
the extra dart of worrying and grieving and lamenting and beating their breast and weeping and becoming distraught. So the sutta says, thus they experience two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. And it's as if that person were pierced by one dart and then following the first piercing, they're hit by a second dart. And again, I'm sure we can all recognize the truth of that, but at least in my own case, I don't usually stop at two darts. I usually add five or ten or fifty or a hundred. So what's the antidote to all that additional suffering? Well, the Buddha contrasted that reactivity of the so-called untaught worldling, which is someone who has no meditation training, with a well-taught noble disciple. And it's the meditation training that is the key. Do we simply know unpleasant as just unpleasant? Now again, maybe you've experimented with this. But sometimes sitting in meditation, if I notice a pain in the knee, for example, I'm sitting there, not liking, not liking, pain, ouch, ouch, ouch. Sometimes if I can just go, oh, it's unpleasant. It's just unpleasant feeling to me and a whole pile of unseen resistance and identification just kind of goes poof and falls away. So you might try that, dropping below the reaction to just naming the feeling tone. However, the usual strategy with unpleasant is to try to get pleasant. The problem with that is it's only ever partly successful. Because of the truth of impermanence, the pleasant experience doesn't last. Before long, unpleasant comes back in, and then we have to go chasing after the next hit of pleasant to get rid of the unpleasant. And the big drawback of this binary push-pull from unpleasant to pleasant and back again is that it keeps us caught in an addictive relationship to sense pleasures. So in that same sutta on the second dart, the Buddha goes on to say, Having been touched by a painful feeling, they resist and resent it, and under its impact, they then proceed to enjoy sensual happiness. And why do they do so? Because an untaught worldling does not know of any other escape from painful feelings, except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. And again, we can probably recognize the truth of that when, in our ordinary lives, something unpleasant or painful happens, what do we do? Drink a glass of wine, or eat a tub of ice cream, maybe take a handful of painkillers, or call a friend, have a nap, go for a run, walk the dog, hug our partner, go shopping, binge watch TV, any others? We all have our favorite strategies. And these aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. But if we're just unconsciously using them to get away from unpleasantness, we're reinforcing that dependence on them. Instead of training ourselves to meet difficulties in a way that does lead to more ease and to more freedom. So if we just keep chasing after pleasant experiences, we stay stuck in our comfort zone. And we don't develop the capacity to be with life's inevitable challenges. So when the big ones come, old age, sickness, injury, death, 
We don't have any resources to meet them, and we suffer even more. So this is a huge topic, and I don't have time to go into it into more depth now. I'd like to turn to the other side of the spectrum and explore some of the ways we habitually relate to pleasant feeling to And again, the first stage is just to recognize pleasant Vedana when it does arise. So again, right now, just take a moment to notice, similar to how we were this afternoon. Just in the body, are there any physical sensations that are pleasant? And if you do notice that, Just notice if there's any trace of clinging to it, any form of wanting it to stay, to hold on to it, maybe to enhance it. And just to notice that without judgment. But also, perhaps, to notice that subtle tension that creeps in when we are trying to cling to what's pleasant. And this is one way we can distinguish between the simple knowing of pleasant feeling tone as pleasant and that tendency to move in to the core afflictive energy of greed. So there's a spectrum there. There's just the knowing, and it can be a slippery slope. Mmm, pleasant. Mmm, pleasant. Oh yeah, pleasant. Mm-hmm. And we get start to move down that slide into wanting to hold on to it, to fix it, to enhance it. Now there's a caveat here that sometimes when people hear all this talk about how pleasant, how sense pleasures can condition greed, they misunderstand it to think that the Buddha was saying we should never enjoy anything, or that pleasant experiences are dangerous and we should somehow try to avoid them. But this is a pretty serious misunderstanding. Pleasant experiences in and of themselves are not a problem. It's the relationship to them that we want to pay attention to. So just as a simple example, imagine at lunchtime, we actually don't even need to imagine, at lunchtime we sometimes have desserts put out. And let's just say, for argument's sake, that they put out a pile of chocolate brownies. And as you come into the dining room, you see that pile. And you think they usually put out enough for everyone, but it doesn't look like there's that many. And so as you're moving towards through the line, you're noticing the pile going down, and you're slowly moving towards it, and it seems like there's fewer and fewer, and you get there and there's enough for you and you realize there's a few more and you wonder if anybody would notice if you just took an extra one just in case if that looked too greedy and probably would so okay I'll just leave it but maybe I could ask the cooks for the recipe afterwards because it was really good and so you might notice in that example of how we've slid from simply noticing pleasant sights and maybe pleasant tastes into mmm wanting more, wanting to prolong, wanting to repeat that experience in future by getting the recipe. And all of that pulling takes us out of the present moment and sometimes leads us to unskillful behavior, just skipping to the front of the line 
or going into the kitchen and having a chat. Relatively innocuous in the context of a retreat. But we know in the outside world how that can be magnified and become even more harmful. So the relationship between pleasant Vedana and greed is pretty obvious and straightforward. What might be less obvious is how for some people pleasant Vedana can actually bring up aversion in the form of fear. And I saw this in my own practice early on and sometimes with some of the students I work with too. So I mentioned our mind's inbuilt negativity bias and in some people this bias is so well developed that they have a hard time even recognizing pleasant feeling tone. But then often on top of that negativity bias we add a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. And this was true for me. It took me quite a while to realize in my own practice that I was actually suspicious of pleasant experiences. I saw them as unreal and lightweight and conversely, unpleasant experiences were reliable and true and real and how life is. And so when I started to recognize, recognize these biases, I touched into another very fundamental assumption that Dharma practice is supposed to be unpleasant. Because if I was actually enjoying something, well, obviously it's not spiritual, right? Now, this probably came partly from my Christian upbringing, where there was a kind of a Puritanism that tends to equate any kind of enjoyment with sin. And I'm not saying that all forms of Christianity are like that, but the way I experienced the Christianity that I was, that was presented to me back then, it unconsciously fed an assumption that meditation is supposed to be hard work, it's supposed to be uncomfortable, it's supposed to be difficult, it's even supposed to be painful. And if it's not those things, it's because I'm not doing it right. I'm doing something wrong, not working hard enough, not going deep enough, not seeing clearly enough. So because of all that conditioning, I had an unconscious resistance even to the idea that enjoyment, let alone joy, might be a necessary part of the practice. So just as you're hearing this, you might notice if any of this aligns with your own conditioning, your own biases. And if you notice something similar, you might just make that effort to notice how you're relating to pleasant feeling tone. To notice if there's reactions of resistance or clinging and gently open to more of the full spectrum of experience, not just the unpleasant feeling tones. If that feels too much of a stretch, then maybe you can start by noticing neutral Vedana. Now, I haven't got a lot of time tonight to go into neutral in detail. Technically, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling tone, which is a bit of a mouthful, so I'll say neutral as shorthand. But it's precisely because neutral feeling tone is neither pleasant nor unpleasant that most of the time it doesn't even register for us. Neutral experiences aren't threatening. They don't give us any pleasure either. 
So generally we need quite a refined awareness to even be able to notice them. But let's give it a try just now. Again, staying with the body. Just seeing if you can notice physical sensation somewhere in the body that's neutral. You might tune into somewhere in the body where nothing much happens. Maybe the earlobes or the inner elbows or the toes. Maybe the temperature of the air against your skin somewhere, whether it's neither warm nor cool, just neutral. Whereas you're breathing, you might notice that change point between in-breath and out-breath, just for a moment. When there's no movement, it might be neutral. So we can consciously train in refining the mindfulness to notice these more subtle experiences. Because if there's no mindfulness, it tends to condition ignorance or delusion. So whereas pleasant Vedana pulls us towards what we want and gives rise to greed, unpleasant Vedana pushes us away and gives rise to aversion, neutral Vedana can work in two ways. If we don't recognize it clearly, we ignore it, so it keeps us stuck in not knowing, spaced out, disconnected. At other times, that same neutrality pushes us into an unconscious search for more stimulation. So again, we go after pleasant experiences if they're available. Sometimes, though, perversely, we'd even prefer to repeat unpleasant experiences rather than stay with neutrality. Many of us are addicted to the highs and lows of life, so that mid-range can feel foreign, even threatening. So some of you may have heard of that research study they did, I think it's two or three years ago, where they invited people to do nothing. So they put them into a room with no stimulation, certainly didn't let them have their devices, so maybe it was a little bit like being on retreat. But they were asked to sit in this room and just do nothing for, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 minutes. The only thing that was in the room was a device that would give the person an electric shock if they pushed the button. <laughs> so you, you probably have heard or you can guess where this might be going. And before people went into the room, they were given a demonstration of how intense that shock would be. And apparently it was quite unpleasant because everybody who tried it beforehand was like, wow, that's not doing that. And then when they went into the room, I, th I forget the exact statistics, but something like after three minutes, three quarters of the men shocked themselves and two thirds of the women shocked themselves because they would rather have an unpleasant stimulation than just sit quietly with themselves. So my first response on reading that is, humanity is doomed. <laughs> but fortunately, there are people who can sit quietly in a room, not just for nine minutes or ten minutes, but for eight whole days. So whew, maybe we're not so doomed after all. 
But just to say, you know, that tendency to not know how to be with neutrality, we can experience it on retreat. Sometimes we find ourselves replaying all kinds of dramas from long ago, or even inventing new imaginary dramas just to sort of amuse ourselves, because anything is better than breathing in and breathing out. So while it's true that the Buddha warned us not to get attached to sense pleasures, what sometimes isn't highlighted is the importance of cultivating skillful mental pleasures instead. So there's a crucial distinction between sense pleasures and mental pleasures, and these include skillful qualities like calm, like samadhi, steadiness of mind, like ease and happiness generosity, joy, and peace. And when we are able to access these profoundly pleasant mental qualities, then ordinary sense-based pleasure loses a lot of its attraction. We're much less likely to go after the pile of chocolate brownies when we've experienced the deep ease and contentment that comes from steadying and refining the heart and the mind. And because of that, when we're not pulled into unskillful behavior, we're more likely to live our lives in ways that benefit others too. So the Buddha came to this understanding of the need for some kind of pleasure on the spiritual path, directly through his own life experience. So just as a very brief summary, the Buddha was born a prince, and supposedly he was able to live a life a complete hedonism, complete luxury. But after, I don't know, I think he was 27 or so, when he was 27 years old, he got tired of all of that hedonism. He left the palace, he went off in search of some way to give his life more meaning. And he got involved in all of the most intense spiritual practices that were available in that time, most of which were pretty hardcore asceticism practices. And the aim of them was to somehow subdue sense desire by tormenting the body. So the Buddha-to-be tried out all of these different practices to such an extent that he almost tortured himself to death. And apparently he was on the edge of dying when he finally realized this is not working so well. Unfortunately for him, uh, someone... Um, he suddenly remembered a pleasant experience that he'd had as a young boy. And so as a young boy, he'd been sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And it was pleasantly cool under the tree, and his body and his mind just spontaneously relaxed, so much that he dropped into a state of deep absorption that was extremely pleasant, even blissful. And when the Buddha-to-be remembered this experience, he suddenly realized it was his fear of pleasure that had been an obstacle to awakening. And he said, quote, Why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? And so he recognized that mental pleasure had been the missing ingredient. And when he allowed himself to develop pleasant mental qualities, 
so that not long after that recognition he attained complete liberation, complete freedom of heart and mind. So the Buddha makes an important distinction between ordinary sense pleasures and skillful mental qualities. And I want to highlight this because, again, in relation to pleasant feeling tone, people sometimes feel afraid of opening up to those skillful states of heart and mind that are actually the fruit of this practice. So just in case any of you have similar conditioning, I'd like to close with a quote from Bhikkhu Analyo on the importance of joy on this path to freedom. He says, after his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be the one who lived in happiness. This statement clearly shows that unlike some of his ascetic contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, it was precisely the eradication of all mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and delight. The ingenuity of the Buddha's approach was not only his ability to discriminate between forms of happiness and pleasure which are to be pursued and those which are to be avoided, but also his skill in harnessing non-sensual pleasure for progress along the path. Numerous discourses describe how, based on the presence of delight, joy and happiness. These arise and lead in a causal sequence to samadhi and to freedom. One discourse compares the dynamics of this causal sequence to the natural course of rain falling on a hilltop, gradually filling the streams and the rivers, and finally flowing down to the sea. Once non-sensual joy and happiness have arisen, their presence will naturally lead to samadhi and realization. Conversely, without gladdening the mind when it needs to be gladdened, realization will not be possible. So may we all experience that ever-deepening non-sensual joy and happiness that lead to realization. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.